Welcome to Let's Talk. Here we will focus on the hustle, the juggle, and everyday struggle of small business. About their everyday struggles, stresses, and ways they have been able to overcome the challenges of running their business. We welcome questions and comments, so please feel free to email us at admin at plemonscpa.com. We hope you enjoy, and above all, we hope it helps. Welcome to the Hustle, Juggle, and Struggle of Small Business. This is Thalia Williams, your hostess. We are proudly sponsored by Pontum Financial, connecting your financial dots. We have in the studio Mr. Larry Hobbs of Management Resolve, an HR consultant specialist. Welcome, Larry. Uh, thank you, Thalia. I appreciate you inviting me back. Today's topic, we're going to be talking about employee handbooks. Some of those things that we don't always discuss but are always needed in a business work setting. So I believe this would be an excellent topic for a lot of individual companies who either have not developed a workbook, who has one, and still are unsure if it's effective. So we're going to talk about that today. So tell me, Larry, why should a company have an employee handbook? I believe that the employee handbook is a communication tool. And uh, I compare it to... Uh, getting a group of people together and say, uh, let's go out and play a game of football, but I'm not going to tell you the rules. We'll just, you'll just learn the rules as we go along. And as you make mistakes, I'll correct you. And, uh, uh, no rules and no policies is like that. They're expecting employees to follow what, uh, the policies are, and yet they're not. Some companies are not willing to give them the policies. And I've actually had uh, over the many years of being in uh, human resource management, I've had some company owners and managers say, "You know, we're a lot safer if we just don't have any policies, oh. because then we can't we they can't be interpreted or misinterpreted, and we can't be sued uh, because we have bad policies." So. We don't need an employee handbook. We'll just get by. We've gotten along uh, this far without a handbook, and so uh, we really don't need one. Uh, of course, that's old and naive. Very naive, especially in this work environment, especially in this day and age particularly. I'm curious to know some of the components in a handbook for an employee that – maybe some employers are not aware of, because I know throughout your years, you've seen quite a bit, quite a bit. And the challenge always becomes what is effective, what is not effective, what is needed, what is not needed. So explain to me some of the things of what forms and HR forms are needed in an employee handbook. The forms that, that should always be included, uh, number one, of course, is the employee orientation. Uh, the government and agencies and attorneys, uh, they always want to know uh, if there's a contest of any kind or a dispute uh, or a lawsuit or a complaint with, with some agency. They want to know, did this employee receive and did they were they trained and did they know your policies? Because uh, there's an old saying that training must precede discipline. Mm. So these agencies know that and uh, they don't think it's fair for you to uh, hand out a 25-page document on the first day of employment 
and have the employee uh, sign here, and uh, within 15 minutes, they're on the job working. These agencies realize that that employee didn't really learn anything and didn't understand anything. They just signed their name a time or two and went right to work because the employer, uh, this employer, uh, wants productivity. Uh, they don't have time for training. So the employee orientation and acceptance form is what I call it. It lists uh, many of the major topics, and at the bottom it says uh, there's a statement uh, above the employee's signature, I received a copy of my employee handbook, and I understand that these rules and uh, and safety policies and uh, benefits apply to me, and I understand that uh, and I agree to follow these policies. And uh, that orientation, it usually takes 45 minutes to an hour, and they get an opportunity to uh, answer questions. And then there's two or three other things that should go with the handbook. Of course, the drug abuse policy of the company is, is in the handbook, but I like to make an additional signature sheet because this is one of those areas that people get uh, get fired or terminated for and could end up in a dispute. And so you not only have the, uh, the policy in the handbook, but you have a separate one- or two-page document that details the drug abuse policy, testing policy, etc., and uh, you have their signature. So if there's a dispute, you have the employee orientation signature – and you have the drug abuse signature, which makes it very clear that this employee received and understood the policy. And then another one is uh, harassment and discrimination, uh, racial discrimination, uh, race, national origin, age, sex, religion, or disability are, are the topics. When there's a dispute over those things, I like to have an additional signature of this employee. And uh, another one would be the time off request form. If the company has any paid time off, it could be vacation, sick leave, uh, PTO, uh, your birthday off, a personal day. Uh, you, you want these employees to request that time off. And so uh, I like to develop a little form to request time off. And then the last one that's often overlooked is uh, what I uh, what most people call a written warning, but uh, I don't call it that anymore. I call it a written reminder or a corrective action. Mm -hmm. And I think that when employees violate policy, whether it's safety, work rules, any other kind of procedure – uh, drugs, whatever, harassment or discrimination, uh, there needs to be a written documentation of that. So I supply, when I write an employee handbook, I supply a corrective action form that reminds the employee of the meeting we had, the discussion we had, what the company agreed to do, what the employee agreed to do, and that's documentation that uh, is vital if there's ever a contest. Nice, real nice. That's a mouthful there because most employers don't look at putting their policies in writing. There are a lot of agencies like ADP and PayrollX and things like that that are create a template for a HR policy. But we know and we've learned through experience sometimes that those templates don't always cover everything that our company has or company wants to put in place. So what have been some of the problems you see with employee handbooks? 
Many employers have told me uh, when I asked them about their employee handbook, they said, well, we, we have a good employee handbook. And uh, and and they'll even uh, let me have a look at it. And uh, I've developed a procedure of looking at anyone's employee handbook. And I look for four things. I look for what what's in the handbook that shouldn't be there. And I'll talk about that in a minute. And I also look for what's missing. Some things like uh, no mention of workplace violence. Well, we know that workplace violence is is, is a big topic today. Whether uh, you know we make fun of the post office and going postal, but uh, it's schools and it's in all kinds of employers. There could be workplace violence or other activities that are of a violent nature. And then I look at the uh, word usage, and uh, many employee handbooks use words that are not high school English words. Uh, they use words that people don't understand. They're talking about their 401k and they talk about vesting. Well, I don't think the typical high school graduate has any idea what vesting means. And so I, I usually find when I analyze uh, someone else's handbook, I find 15 or 20 of those words that are legal words or uh, words uh, like mitigation some of us know what it means. A lot of people don't know, know what it means. And then some other typical things that I find are the subjects are in a very illogical order. Mm-hmm. They just uh, – when they when they change their policy or they develop a new policy, they just add it on the end. Mm. And so you, you're skipping all over. Uh, I have a very logical order that I think the the policy should be in, uh, and uh, the the first one and the most important one is everything associated with payroll, mm. because that's really what people are interested in. And then another major problem I've seen is a lengthy explanations of the legal requirements or the legal regulations. I've seen employee handbooks that spend three pages typewritten talking about uh, Family Medical Leave Act. Well, employers are required to post a poster on their bulletin board that outlines FMLA. And if someone wants to know about it, they can ask and they can get detailed information. I don't think it's appropriate to put it in the employee handbook, yes, you can mention it. And then uh, if you need more information, please request the inf- request to management or to the HR and we'll give you uh, that information. And there are uh, other things I've seen like uh, an explanation of how to file for unemployment at the Texas Workforce Commission if you're terminated. I've actually seen that in an employee handbook. Uh, I made up a saying, uh, employers are not required to teach labor law to their employees. The only requirement is to have the mandatory posters on your bulletin board. And there's about uh, five state posters and six or seven federal posters. Now, with those posters, I do have a question. Is there a size requirement of their employers if it's a small office like three employees? Are they still required to have all eight posters, ten posters? I recommend that they have them. Of course, uh, FMLA uh, has a 50-employee requirement within a 75-mile radius. So I tell small employers with fewer than 50 employees, don't even mention FMLA. 
It doesn't apply. Your employees are not eligible and you're not a covered employer. Uh, Some of the uh, Department of Labor regulations start for employers that have 20 or more employees. Mm. So uh, they should look into that and put the posters up that apply to them. Another major problem I find is employers tend to put standard operating procedures in the handbook. What time do we open the store? Uh, How do you uh, set the alarm and and, uh, turn the alarm off and on? And uh, how do salesmen sell their products? And, you know, those are things about how we do our business. And they're not really topics that should be in the employee handbook. What I like to see in the handbook are are those policies uh, that cover everyone. And the sales, the salesperson, yes, they they need training on how to sell, but not in the employee handbook. So I'm always on the lookout for SOPs mm-hmm. or standard operating procedures, uh, and I recommend you take out of those uh, out of the handbook. Another problem is. When I read the handbook through, I see contradictions. It'll say one thing over here, and, and under another uh, section or another policy, it'll say something else, uh, like holidays or vacation, sick leave, termination. It'll say two different things, and I, I'm always looking for that. And then the biggest problem, the single biggest problem, is when an employer borrows another company's handbook or they borrow pieces and bits of it. Or uh, they take a handbook where they used to work or where their wife used to work uh, and they take that and they adopt that as their employee handbook. And I read some really funny things. Recently, I was uh, writing a new employee handbook for a, a small company and they had a handbook, but I could tell it was from a large corporation and it talked about the executive committee. An employer with 10 employees in a little retail setting, uh, they don't have an executive committee, and yet it was in their handbook because they just borrowed it from somewhere else and adopted it and began using it, and uh, many, many things in that handbook had nothing to do with their business and didn't make any sense. So, of course, I just I didn't really revise their handbook. I rewrote a new handbook for them. Based on their business, their operations, based on what their needs were for their employees. Yes, I, I have some uh, I have some typical subjects that should be in the employee handbook. And I simply question the owner, the manager, or the decision maker, could be one or two, sometimes three people that make the decisions, usually the owner and the general manager uh, or the office manager that does the payroll. And uh, I simply ask them some questions and I take handwritten notes and with that information uh, and the appropriate questions and, and lengthy discussions, because sometimes they'll come up with things that I say, actually, what you're saying is not legal. Or they'll say, uh, they'll tell me what their policy is, and, and I'll say, well, I'd like to recommend something a little different than that. And then based on my knowledge and experience, I can help them uh, come up with better, better policy and better wording. I'm curious to know about conflict of interest in an employee handbook. How is that needed nowadays? Because everyone who may work for one employer may have a side gig 
that could conflict or could be, you know, something totally different than what they do. So how would you handle that? Well, the conflict of interest is of significance at different levels for different companies. Uh, If you're in the printing business and you have a lot of competition, then you want to have a policy that tells your employees uh, something like this. Uh, It's understandable that employees may have other employment. However, that employment cannot be in competition with our printing business. Another subject, conflict of interest and non-compete. Now, non-compete is really a different policy, and that usually has to do with uh, why you're working for us or for the first year after you leave us, you cannot work in our industry, particularly if you're borrowing our customers or trying to hire our employees or soliciting uh, new business in our same industry. And that becomes a little uh, legalistic and, and, uh, and confusing because the government takes the position that it, when a person leaves employment with you, your non-compete cannot stop them from making a living. They still have to go out and do what they do. Mm-hmm. But what you can do is restrict them uh, what they take, lists of your your customers. Uh, they can't come back and solicit your employees to steal them or pirate them away from your employment. And so uh, conflict of interest is different than non-compete but they're closely related. Mm, that's good to know because non-competes seem to be similar in in scope to non-disclosures in the sense of, okay, I can put all of this and you can't disclose this, you can't disclose that. Same with a non-compete. You can't compete in a, for a year after you leave our business. Not necessarily in the industry, but you can't create your own company. You can't do anything like that. And that seems, like you said, a hindrance on a livelihood of someone who may have a skill set that is viable in that industry. Well, yes, and and uh, if, if the if the non compete issue is really important for an employer, uh, they usually add another HR form that might be one or two or three pages long uh, that that details and outlines and summarizes all of the considerations of the non compete. And then you would have a, your new employee sign that non-compete so that going into the job, they understand that there are some restrictions when they leave your employment. So that would be another HR form. Uh, many companies aren't concerned about non-compete. People leave and they just go find another job and it has nothing to do with the current business. But uh, that could be significant and it is for some types of business. Yeah, that's key, some types of businesses because some retail stores may not need it, but if you're a inventor and you have someone working with you that helped with the invention or you're a creator, curator of something new, like a new brew, you know, you don't want your trade secrets going to a competitor, nor do you want them starting their own brew company with secrets that they learned from you. Uh, in the conflict of interest paragraph that's in the employee handbook, I, I like to say something like, it's understandable that you may have outside employment. Uh, 
Uh, however, that outside employment cannot be in the same industry as ours or in competition with our business. And you must be fully prepared when you come to work at your job uh, to be uh, rested and fully productive. Because, you know, a lot of people are going to school at night. They might uh, be working at HEB at night stocking shelves. And by the time they come around to 8 o'clock, they're just dragging into your job. And they're not uh, wide awake and fully prepared. So I'd like to mention some things in there uh, that tells them uh, we don't care what you do in your own time. We have no control over that. It just can't affect your job or our business. So talk a little bit about telephone use. We know that in this day and era, everyone has a cell phone. Either it's a flip phone, a smartphone, some type of phone. And in the workplace, we're digitally connected somehow or another. But talk about telephone use. How can that be applied or put into an HR handbook? Well, I like to tell the story that uh, as I started my career after getting out of college, uh, back in the 60s and 70s, there were no cell phones. And if you wanted to use a telephone at work, you had to go to your boss who had a desk with a phone on it. And you had to ask the boss, may I use your phone? And the boss would say, well, yes, go ahead, but limit it to one or two minutes. And then your boss was listening to your conversation. So it had to be significant. It had to be a call home, call the doctor, uh, something uh, that was really important, and it was very limited. And today, uh, the cell phones are, are a lot more than telephones. Uh, you can gamble. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can watch movies, listen to music, uh, see pornography, listen to anything and everything that you want. And, of course, Facebook and and uh, all the other social media, a lot of people are hooked on those. I, I think that telephone use in the workplace is, is one of the major problems in corporate America today because even uh, road construction, you drive by a road construction crew and there's you know one person down there shoveling and three people standing there watching. Those three people also are talking on their cell phones or – texting or watching or listening and uh it's it's non-productive and of course the uh the, the state of Texas has passed regulations about using your cell phone while driving they know that you're going to be distracted if you're on your cell phone texting or whatever and there's you know dozens of things you can do with your cell phone uh, i forgot to mention photography and videos But uh, you could be doing many, many things. Well, employers also realize that if you're using your cell phone while you're being paid to work, you're not working. And so we have to delicately write these policies uh, to allow people to have a cell phone. And I've written handbooks where employers uh, require that employees leave their cell phone in the car or that they're allowed to have them uh, at their desk, but they have to be turned off or on vibration. The main thing I like to write in the employee handbook is that telephone usage, cell phone usage should be done during break time and lunch period, Mm. after work or or before work, Mm -hmm. and not while you're supposed to be working and while you're being paid. The old scenario that people throw in my face all the time. Well, what about emergencies? 
My question is, when was the last time you had an emergency phone call? And most people can't even remember one. Or it was five years ago. The answer is, give your work number, the place your employer, to everybody that's important in your life. If they'll call that number within 30 to 60 seconds, we'll relay the information to you, and then you'll know about the emergency, and you can take the appropriate reaction to it. The old thing is that I need my cell phone at all times because I have children or because there might be an emergency. It really doesn't hold water in in today's world. Uh, That's a, a very old, outdated, frivolous concept. And I'm sure you will have pushback on that from the employees because of the connectivity, electronic tethers that most employees have to their phone. But if it's put in the policy, put in the handbook, but they have understanding that it's only to be used during those particular times, they can train themselves to utilize the phone in that manner. That's the biggest problem is self-discipline. I just have to say it right out. Many, many people are addicted to their cell phones. They're addicted to Facebook. They're addicted to uh, texting. They just cannot resist. When they hear that bling, 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 they have to answer it. Pavlov's dog. And that's that's, uh, not good for the employer. And remember that uh, employer handbooks written by management to enforce company policy, it's all about uh, we pay you and you work. And the time we pay you, we expect you to work. You want 100% of your pay. We want 100% of your work. And I'm afraid cell phones have broken that down rather severely in many cases. True enough. Even though some companies have their salespeople with cell phones, We know that those salespeople aren't always selling a full eight hours a day. They do have their lunches. They do have their breaks, so on and so forth. So for them, they might go, well, I need my cell phone all the time because I'm on sales. And if I'm working, then my cell phone has to be on. I have to be able to access it, even if I'm in the office. Because, you know, salespeople do come back to the office periodically. So how would you address that? Well, again, this is why cell phone use at work is a major corporate problem. Many people carry two cell phones. Uh, The corporate policy is that you cannot use your company-provided cell phone for personal. So you carry two. So now you really have two problems. And uh, other companies say you can use your company credit card or your company cell phone for personal use, but you have to take care of of your share of the costs. Uh, Those things have to be worked out, but it it always gets back to self-discipline. Of course, your example of a a salesperson, they have a lot of flexibility. Uh, They don't really punch the clock, and they don't always come to the office. And and then we have the problem of remote workers who do not go to the office, uh, maybe occasionally, but not on a regular basis. They have their home phone, their landline, their cell phone, their television, uh, their uh, music blaster. I mean, they have that available all the time. So enforcing the telephone use policy is a major problem. And then the other problem is that when someone is caught at work using their cell phone on work paid time, 
a lot of times a supervisor really doesn't want to confront that or make an issue or tell them just don't do it again. And so they got away with it and it's a waste of time and money and low productivity for the employer. And I'm, I'm a management guy. So we have Chris here. We'd like to talk about your post-COVID business update. What's going on, Chris? Well, think about it as in any life-changing event, you're going to need to sit down with the proper professionals and remind them or let them know what's going on in your current situation. So I always say you need to reconvene with professionals about the reopening to make sure that you refocus and revisit and review all the different items that you had going on. So your business may have changed dramatically over the course of the last 18, 24 months, however long it's been now, and they need to know what's going on. Likewise, you need to know what's going on in their world so they can tell you about any upcoming changes or any changes to their business model. Just make sure you keep everybody in the loop and make sure that everything is being communicated on an open platform. So, Chris, how can we get a hold of you for more information? Well, our main office is in San Antonio off of 281 and Bitters. We also have a website, pontemfinancial.com, P-O-N-T-E-M financial.com. And we're also on LinkedIn, Facebook, and of course, we have a phone, 210-625-4845 to reach out to a member of my team or myself. Thank you, Chris. Chris Hall is a financial advisor and partner with Pontum Financial in San Antonio, Texas. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor. Member FINRA slash SIPC. Next topic I'd be interested in finding out about, training and education. How do you write that into an employee handbook where it can be beneficial to the employee as well as to the employer? It can be a short paragraph. Some companies have no training, uh, outside training. We're not talking about on-the-job training. We're talking about uh, training where you have someone come in or you have the employee sit down on the computer and do a video uh, training. And uh, one thing I found out that uh, many employers, particularly small employers, they think that uh, training time is not paid time. Mm. I've had that many, many times. Uh, I've been told that by the employer. Yeah, we require them to do a certain amount of training, but uh, that's on their own time. Well, that's that's completely against the Department of Labor wage and hour regulations and the Texas Workforce Commission. So training time is paid time. The other two things that come to mind, some companies will actually pay college tuition. They'll pay for a seminar, a workshop, or a college class if it's related to your job. And they would have a form where you re- request uh, training and you would like to go to this uh, workshop that costs $149 and you'll be away from work for one day. Well, then you need to have a policy that says, you know, either we'll pay for it in advance or you pay for it. And upon successful completion, we'll reimburse you. So there can be a, a variety of uh, situations, and it depends on the company. And then the uh, the jobs that require licensing and certification, you always have the CEUs or other forms of uh, continuing education. And the question becomes is should the employee pay for those and should they do those on their own time? Yeah, they have to have that certification or license in order to work. 
or should the employer pay for that? And I, I get a mixed bag on that. Some employers uh, paid for, uh, say, a dental hygienist, not for their original certification, but for their continuing education. Some dentist office will pay for that. And others say, no, they, they need to keep that up and they're on their own. Mm. So it, it, it could be a benefit and make this a more wonderful place to work. Or it could be if you want to keep your license or your certification, uh, take care of it. I like the perk that that would offer being certified and you continuing to pay for my education because that's only going to help your business if I'm certified because I could be an intricate part, a key person in your business. And if I'm not able to stay certified, I could hinder you because I could lose my license, which could impact you. But on the flip side, if I decide to go somewhere else, you know, I've been certified now for the next two years. I can go somewhere else. Well, uh, two things come to my mind. One is that I've, I've actually written a uh, separate form on uh, tuition reimbursement or education and training. And it'll say something like, uh, if the company pays for your training and you leave within six months, you will, you will repay us 100%. If you leave within 12 months, between six and 12 months, you will reimburse us 50% tuition, books, travel, hotel, meals, whatever was included depending on uh, where the training was and, and how long it was. So there is a way for the employer to protect themselves uh, through their policy to say we're, we're willing to pay for this great training but you have to stay with us because what you don't want is to get their certification and boom, uh, they make 50 cents or a dollar or two dollars more and move over to your competitor. Uh, That's a a lose-lose situation. But something else came to to my mind as you were talking about tuition reimbursement and education and training, and that is in today's market where finding and hiring good workers is a problem, some employers have started offering an added benefit of, uh, we'll hire you, say, an air conditioning company. We'll hire you as an air conditioning helper, and it'll take you uh, six months to get your air conditioning state license, and we'll pay for that, but you have to promise to stay with us for a year after completion of the training. So depending on the labor shortage, and recruiting problems, some of these uh, training policies are changing. And that's one scenario where uh, they'll take a person that has no certification and start them out as a helper of some sort, some level, and pay for the training because that's the only way they can get certified technicians is to hire them and pay for them to get their training. So Everything is subject to change depending on the economy, of course. Definitely, definitely. And that's even even on a, a federal level because I remember back in college, not quite as far as you, but back in college where individuals could go to school, get education, get pay, get scholarships or get monies, but then they'd have to work in a depressed area if they were a medical student in order to get their loans, you know, um, paid for and taken care of. I think it was a public service loan or something like that. Same way with teachers in education. They would get their education. They would get all the money to go to school for free 
but then they'd have to work five years in essence to pay it off. Yes, in 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 what's considered a uh, traditionally disadvantaged neighborhood, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of criteria, the Small Business Administration and Housing and Urban Development. They they have these areas designated, and if you're willing to to work for one of those schools or one of those practices or or live and work in a certain neighborhood. You can have those forgiven. Uh, there are actually companies, major corporations, that will pay college tuition for employees and allow them to, as soon as they get their degree, change jobs and move to some other employer. It's just a great benefit with a great company. Mm, that's nice. But small employers uh, can't can't go there. No, but they can at least offer potentially the opportunity, like you said, of hiring someone with maybe a great beginning skill set, but not fully as a helper to get a trade skill and then utilizing that person in their actual practice once they get trained and they have their certification. But put that criteria of, okay, you must work for us for a year, 18 months or whatever, based on equivalency of what the cost of the training is. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about a policy on solicitation. What is solicitation? Well, solicitation, it's in many handbooks, but most employers and definitely most employees have no idea what it's about. And I'll tell you the the basic reason to have a non-solicitation policy. What it means is that during working time, you're not allowed to sell Girl Scout cookies. Oh, man. To, to do football lotteries, to sell barbecue tickets to your son's little league. Uh, and it's soliciting other employees or engaging them. You know, people sell Tupperware, people sell tacos, people sell jewelry. I mean, uh, there's no limit to uh, people selling at work. Captive audience. I, I got uh, yes, right and there. they're your friends, and mm-hmm. usually as a favor to you, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll buy a couple of barbecue tickets for chicken you know, on Saturday night because we like chicken and here's the money. So you want to have a non-solicitation policy, but it's not really about any of that. Mm. And this is where employers don't understand this. The National Labor Relations Act of 1935, which established unions, legalization of unions in the United States, says that employers – who allow solicitation at work also must allow union organizers to solicit at work. Oh. So if you have a policy or a practice of allowing your employees to be solicited at work, then the union you can't discriminate against unions or union organizers or employees who lean towards unions. Uh, that's a prohibited, protected class. So if the union can show or demonstrate that you, your company believes in solicitation at work, you have to let the union in on your property, in your lunchroom, in your break room to solicit hand out literature, and transact business during non-working time. Mm. That's the real bottom reason. And very few employers have ever heard that. You probably never heard that yourself. But it has to do with 
If you're a company that that allows solicitation of your employees, then you can't discriminate against union solicitors. You have to let them in to also solicit. So we just have a rule. It's a short paragraph that employees may not solicit other employees and hand out any paper, forms, non-work-related forms, sell any product during working time. Mm. And that's very critical because they are allowed to do these things on their own time. So on their lunch, they can use their phone. They can talk about anything they want to talk about. Uh, They can talk to other employees about forming unions. But you don't want the union organizers to come in and talk about unions because they're uh, highly paid and high-powered, and uh, they will be very convincing. So that's why we put non-solicitation. It's just a little unnoticed paragraph, but it protects the employer from unionization to some extent. Now, that's interesting because when you talk about the year that that law was created, everybody worked in a different place. They worked in a facility, be it an office building, be it a factory, be it whatever. But now we're in 2022, and this is going to be an evergreen podcast, but just now in this day and age, you have everyone working either remotely Hybrid, meaning they're in the office or they're working remote, would this policy still be applicable? Well, uh, the truth of it is that unionization in America peaked in 1955. Uh, As a percentage of the workforce, that percentage was the highest it ever was in 1955, and unions have been on the decrease ever since. Mm -hmm. So many people just don't like the concept of paying dues or having representation Uh, Other people uh, who grew up around unions, they love it and they like it and they don't mind paying the dues. So it's it's an acceptable concept. It also has to do with uh, state laws, right-to-work laws. Uh, But those things don't really go in the employee handbook. They're all outside of that activity. I think that not having employees working in a central place is a detriment to unionization. The employees are scattered out. You're not going to be able to throw a picnic. You're not going to be able to uh, hand out gift certificates. You're not going to be able to give speeches because everyone's not in one place at one time. So I think that uh, the unionization is is still on the decline. Uh, There are just a few states where it's still strong. Many states, it's uh, not strong at all. Now, are there other topics that you'd like to talk about in the employee handbook? We have uh, maybe about 10 more minutes. Uh, Yes, I'd like to mention uh, one thing that I I said before was that uh, many, many topics in the handbooks are not in logical orders. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to take a couple of major topics and and tell you what would be included under that topic. Uh, One that I'll mention is uh, I I have a major section in, in the handbooks that I write called pay practices. Mm. Well, that includes the pay period. What is the pay period? And most people have never heard this, but the Department of Labor says that the pay period must be seven consecutive days of 24 hours equaling 168 hours. So the payroll week has to be a seven-day period. Now, don't get that confused with how often you get your paycheck. 
and most people do get that confused. Some people get paid weekly, but that's not the payroll week. The payroll week might uh, start on Monday and end on Sunday, and you get your check the following Friday. Those are different weeks. The reason that the payroll period, and this is one of your pay practices of the company policy, uh, the reason is because of overtime. So the Department of Labor requires that you keep meticulous records, punching in, punching out, lunches, uh, when a person worked, when they didn't work, when they got paid, when they didn't get paid. Some people have time off without pay. And so the payroll period has to be a seven-day period. Now, you can pay your employees weekly or biweekly. Some employers pay monthly. My wife's a school teacher. One check a month. Oh, that's cringeworthy. I'm sorry. I have habits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you you tend to run out of money. For, Before you run out of month. Uh, there's an old saying, yeah, I have plenty of money. There's just too much month. Yes. Agreed. Yeah, I've heard that. Uh, the, the second thing under payroll practices, I, I always mention timekeeping. Uh, is it a clock? Is it a computerized punch in? Is it a written sheet? that has the seven days of the week and you just write it in. The government does not specify how you keep your time records, but they have to be accurate because if there's ever a dispute, the first thing the the government will ask for in a wage audit is let me see the hours worked record keeping. And if you don't produce that, well, then you're in trouble. You're in violation of the law. Uh, another thing, as I like to put in the handbook, is what 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 are the payroll deductions? What might we take out of your check as you move from your gross income to your net take-home pay? And, of course, it's things like uh, federal income tax, Social Security. It might be child support. It would be Medicare. And it might be uh, educational loans that you've defaulted on and a court orders the employer to deduct those out of your, your wages. It could be child support, which is called garnishment. And it could be discount purchasing. Uh, if the employer sells or provides a service that the employees buy at a discount, well, that could be done through payroll deduction. I know and, hospitals do that too. You know, instead of their employees always having to have their credit card or debit card, they'll just show or swipe their ID badge. For lunch. For lunch or, or whatever. Whenever they go to the break area, they can swipe that and it gets deducted. Some people I know have been shocked <laughs> because they didn't get as much as they thought because they've been eating most of their stuff by just swiping and swiping. Yeah, uh, they like to swipe. Mm -hmm. They don't like to pay. Mm -mm. And then there's insurance programs where uh, the employer pays part of the insurance and the employee pays part, or they offer insurance programs that the employee pays 100%, and that's also uh, through payroll deductions. Another topic under pay practices would be bonuses. Uh, some employers have them, some don't. What I like to write is that bonuses are not scheduled or guaranteed. Mm. However, if business conditions are positive and the company makes profit, the company may be willing to provide bonuses at the end of the year. 
They used to call them Christmas bonuses, but now it's uh, seasonal or end of the year. So employers like that wording because it's it's not forcing them to make a bonus. If you have a good year, could be a bonus. A bad year, no business success that year, then there won't be a bonus. Uh, training and education is another thing that would fall under payroll because the company is spending money on you. We already talked about that. Employee discounts. Uh, no matter who you work for, you, you might be using that service. And then I made up one that nobody's ever heard of before, and it's called During Disasters. Oh, I like to put a paragraph in there that if there is a bomb threat, a fire, a flood, a hurricane, a tornado, any interruption to our business and the business is not able to open, employees should not expect to be paid. Oh, my. It's very informative. True. But it might stop an employee from calling in a bomb threat so they get the day off with pay. Mm. Or if there is a serious uh, disruption to your business, uh, weather, icy roads, tornado, whatever, uh, flooding, uh, the employees are told in advance that if the business is closed or you're not able to come to work, due to unusual circumstances, uh, you will not be paid for that time. Now, can, and you know, this is me talking as an employee, can I use my personal time to uh, offset that loss, my PTO, my vacation? Is that also written in the employee handbook? It should be. Okay. Because the next topic, uh, which you led right into it, is paid time off mm -hmm. is another major section. And payroll and paid time off are the two things that I put at the front of the handbook because those are the two things that employees are going to refer to the most often mm -hmm. uh, as they want to know about these policies. I, I recommend to employers that they get rid of vacation and sick leave and birthdays and personal days and just roll it into something called paid time off. Paid time off can be used for any purpose, any of those that I just mentioned, personal use, legal days where you have to show up in court. Uh, the employer doesn't care. So many hours or so many days, usually depending on your seniority, that you get to be absent and paid. It's called paid time off. Mm -hmm. I recommend that. Uh, why should we keep track of uh, this bucket of time comes out of vacation and this bucket of time over here is called sick leave and this bucket of time over here is called your birthday and on and on and on. There's all kinds of words that are used for that. And uh, just under paid time off, there could be PTO. There could be an unpaid leave of absence. I recommend we put that in there because people get have extended illnesses or if something happens, uh, they've already used all of their paid time off, but their parents are having their 50th wedding anniversary in Chicago. Well, you got to go to that, but you've already burned all of your vacation. For this year, yes. For this year. So we have something called unpaid leave of absence. You request that in writing. It's limited to... 20 or 30 or 45 days, and it also serves another purpose. Let's say you have a, a, a really great employee that's worked for you for many, many years, and they're your friend now, and they're also your employee, and, and, they, and they get something like uh, a cancer. 
Well, the question comes up, well, how long do you do you keep them on the payroll? Boom, the answer is unpaid leave of absence is limited to 45 calendar days. That's the answer. They're on the payroll under unpaid leave of absence after they've burned all of their PTO, vacation, sick leave, whatever you call it. I recommend PTO. Uh, after that, they go on 45 days could be work days or calendar days, and I let the employer decide that. That's the day you terminate them, and you terminate them because they're unable to work. Mm, that's harsh. It has to happen. Oh, undoubtedly. Do, do you leave these people on the payroll uh, for six months because you like them and you get rid of them after three days because they're a new employee or you don't like them? You've got to be consistent. Uh, I made up a saying, and next, next, the next podcast, I think we're going to be talking about discrimination and diversity, but I made up a saying, the opposite of favoritism is discrimination. Mm. So the purpose of the handbook, one of them, is to get consistency. This is how we do things. These are our policies and procedures, and we follow them, and we don't deviate because as soon as you make exceptions – to your policies, then everyone that didn't get that exception has a right of action. They have a right to complain. You gave it to that other person, but you didn't give it to me. I wonder if it's because of my race, national origin, age, gender, religion, or disability. They can just make up anyone they want, and boom, you have a lot of explaining to do. Ploy Handbooks sets out your policies and gives the managers and the employees a path to follow. Excellent. What a way to end our podcast. So, Larry, how can we get a hold of you if we want you to come in and review our handbook or write one for us? What's the best way to reach you? My telephone number in San Antonio is 210-316-4206. My website is called managementresolve, all one word, dot com. And that has a lot of useful information. Uh, I've re even written about 35 articles that I have posted on, on different uh, management topics. And uh, if you go to the website, managementresolve.com, go to articles, click on any article. You can read those articles that talk about many of the subjects that we've talked about today. Okay. And an email just in case? Yes. Uh, it's quite simple. Uh, Larry.a dot hobbs at gmail.com wow thank you so much larry we're looking forward to our next podcast you all have a great rest of your day thank you for more information about any of our guests or if you have questions and comments please email us at admin at plemonscpa.com and don't forget to check out our website plemonscpa.com for upcoming events and workshops in San Antonio. David B. Plemons CPA Inc. is providing this podcast as a public service, but it is neither a legal interpretation nor a statement of David B. Plemons CPA Inc. policy. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by David B. Plemons CPA Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the Hustle, Juggle, and Struggle of Small Business podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or their concepts or any entity they represent.
Views and opinions expressed by David B. Plemons, CPA Inc. employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the views of David B. Plemons, CPA Inc. or any of its officials. You should always consult your own investment advisors, attorneys, and accountants before making any decisions concerning your financial matters. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our office. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.